1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. In this chapter, Paul moves from instructions concerning leaders to instructions concerning dangers. And the chapter begins with a description of the dangers in verses 1 through 5. And then a strategy of defenses against those dangers in verses 6 through 16. And once again, Paul will denounce the dangers of heresy and heretics, false teachers and false teaching. Those things that bring danger to the Christian, to Christian living. And he's going to also talk about the dangers of living a life in inappropriate self-denial and in inappropriate self-indulgence in order to avoid the extremes of legalism and license, the twin ditches which people seem to gravitate towards rather than staying on the path of the straight and the narrow. And so he's going to talk to us about when the danger will come and who is dangerous and and what dangerous things will they do and and he's going to give us a, a little discussion if you will of christian essentials and so beginning in verse 1 at the very opening verse it says now the spirit expressly says that in the latter days In other words, when will the danger come? The danger will come in the latter days. Paul tells Timothy that the source of his information is the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit seems to indicate, according to this text, expressly that the danger comes in the latter times. By the way, that word expressly is the Greek word retos. It actually means something specific or something precise. It means the Spirit speaks in specific terms. I'm going to even use the idea of plain words or distinct words. Another word that comes to my mind is unambiguous. The whole point being that the Spirit is speaking in such a way that it is unmistakably clear and you can't make a mistake and what are the latter times these are the days prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus in a very real sense the latter times begin with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and continue until his glorious resurrection. And so when the New Testament speaks of the latter days, it literally is speaking of that moment when Jesus dies on the cross, comes back to life, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and then all of the days that unfold between his ascension into heaven and his return in glory. But it would also seem to indicate from the context that it is pushing, pushing forward. It would appear in this context to mean an ever-increasing growth in false teachers and false teaching that's going to require an ever-increasing vigilance. And so, Paul's warning, and the warning, again, is that the false teachers that Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, have arrived. 
they're here. Now remember, Paul is writing this in 64 AD. And so there was an ever-increasing presence of more and more false teachers and more and more false teaching. And so it says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will come. Some will depart from the faith. Now, even in that one simple word, I've, I've dedicated a whole portion of this passage to that one word, some. Why? Because he's talking about the false teachers. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Some, but not all. It would appear that Ephesus is a hub of false teaching and false teachers. Paul had warned them in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 that when he would leave, that, that people would come in and they wouldn't spare the flock of God. They wouldn't spare the church of Christ. And John would later record the stinging words of Jesus' rebuke in Revelation chapter 2 verse Verse 2, when he's speaking to the Ephesian church, and he's, he will say to the Ephesian church, these are the good things that you're doing, but this is the bad thing that I want to bring to your attention. You've left your first love. So Paul has already warned Timothy about those who teach another doctrine in chapter 1, verse 3, who are preoccupied with fables and genealogies and disputes rather than edification in chapter 1, verse 4 which he says, quote, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says they're guilty of idle talk, empty chatter, meaningless, pointless monologues, worthless subjects about things that don't really matter. They violate their own conscience in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. And Paul has given two examples of people who have turned from the faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who would later deny the biblical doctrine concerning the resurrection, even coming to the place where they would deny that there really was a resurrection. And so these false teachers that Paul will later describe as proud people who don't know what they're talking about, who suffer from a kind of spirit deficit disorder, preoccupied with controversy, designed to produce envy and strife, they're absolutely willing to use abusive language and harbor evil suspicions, causing constant friction in chapter 6, verse 4. They use the church and they use the brethren to gain a foothold and they willingly embrace so-called science, which isn't really science at all. It's knowledge falsely called in order to build their case. And if you turn just a few chapters ahead to the very last chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, where it says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes, arguments over words from which come envy and strife and reveling and evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. And then in verse 20, at the very, almost at the very end, O Timothy, Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the vain, profane, idle babblings, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul says, withdraw from them, avoid them. So does that mean that we never engage or confront or refute the false teacher? And their false 
teaching? Can we ever confront them? Can we ever engage them? Can we plead our case and affirm the truth and the purity of the gospel as it's revealed in the person of Jesus? And I think that the answer is, of course we can. We are instructed to give an answer to every man for the hope that's within us. We have to give reasons for our faith, but we also have to give reasons for hope. And we have to also remind ourselves that those people who oppose the gospel and who oppose Jesus and oppose the truth, these are the ones who are problems. Os Guinness writes, quote, some people think that having reasons for faith is an insult to God. But verification itself depends on the unchanging authority and stability of the word of God. We're not insulting God, but bringing glory to him by taking his word as the stable, authoritative truth that it is. In other words, we are going to do what they refuse to do, and that is to believe God's word and teach God's word and embrace God's word. And so what are the dangerous things? Things that they're going to do. Look what it says at the end of verse 1. They're going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The dangers come from a departure from the faith. They'll reject the teachings of Jesus. They'll reject the teachings of Peter. They'll reject the teachings of Paul. They'll reject the teachings of James and Jude, but they will accept the teachings of the lying, false teachers. And according to Paul, they embrace lying spirits and demons. In short, Paul is going to draw attention to four things that should cause us grave concern. We should read this and we should go, well, what am I supposed to think about what I'm reading and what, I'm, what am I supposed to do with the information that I've just been given? And so he's going to point to four things. Number one, false teachers depart from the faith. They don't embrace the faith. They leave the faith. Number two, the false teacher's source materials are seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. In other words, the information that they believe and teach doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from somewhere other than the Bible. Number three, False teachers are notorious liars, not simple liars, but hypocritical liars. Number four, false teachers have seared conscience as if with a hot iron. Now remember, in order to understand what Paul is saying, you have to understand what the Bible says about the conscience. Remember, it's the moral organ that motivates you to do what's right rather than what's wrong. It is that which motivates you to do what's right. And so when it is cauterized, when it is scarred, when it is hardened, that the image is of something that is hot that burns your central nervous system to the point where you actually can't feel anymore. And so in brief, we're going to talk about that. They abandon Christian essentials. They embrace evil spirits. They proclaim teachings that are contrary to the Bible. They appear insensitive to the truth. And they refuse to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so we begin. Number one, they abandon Christian essentials. The essentials were in part talked about in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. When we got to verse 16, remember we talked about the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. When he's talking about the mystery of godliness and the essential incarnation of the Lord Jesus, remember we're talking about 
this is the faith that they've departed from. The belief that God has sent his son Jesus. It's the creeds of Christianity that were formulated from the very beginning when, when they began to say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. It's the Apostles' Creed. It's the Athanasian Creed. It's the things that Christians have held to since the very beginning. The justification by the Holy Spirit, the earthly ministry of Jesus as seen and testified by angels, Paul's preaching of the gospel, people's acceptance of the gospel. So what are the Christian essentials? What are the rock bottom, bare bones minimum that a person has to believe and still be able to call themselves Christian? I have a Mormon friend. And I said, unhappily, that Mormonism is a cult with a wrong Jesus and a wrong gospel and a wrong way of being saved. And he took great umbrage. He said, no, right in our name, look what it says. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's right there in our title. And I said, you're not the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because according to your belief, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jesus is an exalted person. You believe in a God that not only is the uncreated creator but who was once a human who becomes a God and is exalted in yonder heavens. Everything that the Bible teaches, you deny. We have to have a right view of Jesus. We have to have a right view of the gospel. We have to have a right view of salvation. The Barna Group on May 19, 2013 wrote this, more than one-fifth of millennials with a Christian background, that's 21%, say Christian beliefs don't make sense to them. And when I read that, I thought, Okay, Christian beliefs don't make sense. It didn't say we don't know what those beliefs are or, or we're unaware of what the Bible is actually teaching or what Christians actually believe. It wasn't their inability to learn or even embrace what the Bible says. They came to the conclusion that it doesn't make sense to them. I wanted to ask the question, help me understand what you don't understand. What is it that you don't get? What is it that you aren't understanding. So what do Christians believe? What's the very rock bottom, bare bones minimum? And the essentials that I've outlined are, are taken from the essentials of Christianity by Norm Geisler. It's a rose pamphlet. It, it, and it, it is, number one, God's unity. There's only one God. There's not two gods or three gods or no God. This is the fundamental bare bones minimum thing that you have to embrace. God's unity. There's only one God. God's triune nature. One God in three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Christ's virgin birth. Human depravity. That is, no one can win God's favor by their own efforts. So when we speak of the fall in the garden and the reality of sin and the problem of sin and the darkness that it creates and the death that it produces. And of Jesus' sinlessness and of his deity and humanity. That Jesus is one person with two natures, completely God and completely human. And the necessity of God's grace because apart from it, you won't experience forgiveness. You won't experience hope. You'll never be able to grasp it. The necessity of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Jesus is atoning death on the cross. It wasn't just simply an accident of history or some catastrophic mistake because he was brutal murdered because the religious leaders simply misunderstood who he is. The Bible teaches that Jesus dies. 
in time and space for a real reason in order to erase the problem of sin and deal with darkness in the human heart. That Jesus rose from the dead bodily and literally. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that his body just became a series of gaseous appearances, that a real Jesus died and then he sort of disappeared. And other people who believe that he died and he remained dead. Other people who, who don't believe that, that, that he even exists or existed at all. And so when we talk about his bodily ascension and his intercession in heaven and his second coming, these are the bare bones minimum that you should believe. But I would go even one step further and I would say that the bare bones minimum that you have to believe is that God's word, the Bible, is real and true and that you can trust it. You can believe what you're reading. Because if you give yourself permission to say, you know what, I believe this part of it and I don't believe that part of it. This is what Augustine said in the 4th century AD. He said this. He said, you don't believe the gospel to the people who came up with that argument. He said, you believe the parts of the Bible that you want to believe and you disbelieve the parts of the Bible that you don't want to believe, but make no mistake about it. When you choose to disbelieve the parts of the Bible that you don't want to believe, here's what you're believing. You're believing in what you want to believe, not in what the Bible says. And look what Paul writes. They embrace evil spirits. The false teachers, false teaching isn't just simply concocted in their own wicked and perverse brain that there is a demonic, supernatural component to false teachers and false teaching. And I actually believe that this is absolutely true. I have a Mormon friend who told me Joseph Smith was uneducated. There's no way he could have written the Book of Mormon on his own. And I said, oddly enough, I'm going to agree with you. You're exactly right. That dumb farm boy couldn't have dreamt up this satanic and demonic counterfeit. It had to have come from somewhere else. Muslims will make the same claim. Muhammad was a poor Arab person untaught, unlearned. How in the world can you explain the Quran? I go, you're exactly right. It has an origin and it is a supernatural in its origin. But that supernatural origin is demonic. William Barclay gives us a brief but powerful insight on men who become the unwitting dupes of Satan. He writes, it was from these evil spirits and demons that this false teaching came. But though it came from demons, it came through men. Now here's the threatening and the terrible thing, he writes. We know that God and God's spirit are everywhere looking for men to use. God is always searching for men who will be his instruments, his weapons, his tools in the world. But here we come face to face with the terrible fact that the forces of evil are also looking for men to use. Just as God seeks men for his purposes, the forces of evil seek men for their purposes. Here is the terrible responsibility of mankind. Man can accept the service of God or the service of the devil. Man can become an instrument of the supreme good good or the supreme evil men are faced with an eternal choice to whom are we to give our lives to God or to God's enemy are we to decide to be used by God or are we to decide to be used by the devil And make no mistake about it, each decision that you make will run along the great dividing line of honoring the Lord, honoring Jesus, 
honoring the gospel, being faithful to Jesus, being faithful to the Bible, or not. And so Paul says that they embrace evil spirits, but they also proclaim teachings that are contrary to the scripture. The false teacher may retain certain teaching that is true. They could even retain certain teachings that are taught in the scripture, but the false teacher will cave into the pressure of either adding error to the truth or subtracting the truth. In other words, it becomes a bizarre mixture of a little bit that's true and even a little bit that's false. So how much of it has to be false before you suspect that this is not something that we can embrace? By the way, imagine I had a a cup of water up here on the podium and I said half of it was filled with poison. How many of you would want to drink it? If I said, oh, you know what, only one-fifth of it is poison, how much would you like to drink? Or what if I put just a single drop of poison inside of the water? You see, the false teacher winds up promoting error, but the truth is you cannot promote error error without demoting the truth. And the false teacher appears insensitive to the truth and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So when it says, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons in verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, Paul will at first remind us that the false teacher will use the method of persuasion and then deception and then deceit. I would even put it a little bit differently. The false teacher would use methods of persuasion and then seduction and then deceit. So they appear sensitive to the truth and they appear sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. On my radio program today, a person called me and asked me about a false teacher and said, you know, this false teacher basically seems to be submissive to the Holy Spirit, but they never talk about the Father and they never talk about the Son. And I said, I'm going to challenge your premise that they're sensitive to the Holy Spirit because the real Holy Spirit of the Bible will always point people to Jesus. And if you claim to be sensitive to a spirit that neglects, ignores, rejects, and refuses to acknowledge Jesus, that that is not the Holy Spirit, that That is a demonic spirit. And his words are strong. Read them for yourself. The false teachers are confused, misinformed, don't get it exactly right. Here's what Paul uses. He uses the word liar and hypocrite and hardened. Liar, hypocrite. Hardened. These are very strong words. I think they're the strongest possible words that you could use to describe this kind of deception. And so in the most simple language possible, the false teachers first deny the things that are in the Bible. Then they add things that aren't in the Bible. They'll subtract from the Bible. They'll multiply and divide, but they won't stay true to the text. The false teacher teaches things that aren't simply there. The false teachers take pride in their false teaching, reminding their disciples that the average person is unable to understand what they're saying by simply reading the Bible. They'll make fun of you. Where do you go to church? Calvary Chapel. (laughs) You go to Calvary Chapel. Oh. What do you do there? We read the Bible. (laughs) You read the Bible. (laughs) What do you do? Hey, we get strange visions and revelations and there's smoke and mirrors and gold dust and feathers that float from the sky. 
Their boast confirms their lies. 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 The very fact that they say, we have the Bible and more. We have the Bible and more. Speaking lies means exactly that. It means speaking things that are contrary to the scripture. And hypocrisy means that the person knows what they're saying. They know that what they are saying is contrary to the scripture. It is a lie in hypocrisy. They know that the Bible says that Jesus is God. They know that the Bible says that he died on the cross for your sin. The Bible, they know that the Bible says that he rose from the dead. And so what they have to do is make the Bible say something that it plainly doesn't say and so they'll impose an interpretation and an application that distances itself from what the Bible actually says to support their unbiblical position or their bizarre beliefs. They're liars. In Leviticus chapter 19 verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Do not deceive one another. But these people will regularly traffic in deceit. The Greek philosopher Demosthenes said, quote, Nothing is so easy as to deceive oneself for what we wish we readily believe, unquote. He was exactly right. No one's more open to deception than ourselves when in fact what we when we want to believe something and so imagine what he's basically reminding us there are people who want to believe that there's a god who will never judge them they want to believe that their sin doesn't matter they want to believe that there's the possibility of life without jesus of heaven without repentance without turning from your sin without trusting jesus as the savior the false teacher want the Bible's version of Christ and salvation to be untrue. Why do they want the Bible's version of Jesus and of salvation to become untrue? Because, in or, because if it is true, then they have to turn from their sin. They have to embrace the Savior. They have to submit to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They have to listen to the voice of God knocking at the door of their heart, begging them, pleading with them. But they resist, and then they reject the Holy Spirit's conviction. In verse 3, it says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The false teacher isn't content with simply teaching false doctrine and promoting false doctrine. They require their disciples to embrace the false teaching and the false doctrine which is going to lead to false living. Well, if I'm not saved by grace through faith, trusting Jesus alone, how am I saved? Well, in order to be saved, you've got to actually go to my church and you have to read my book. And oh, by the way, you have to go door to door and you have to knock on the door. You have to knock on the door and you have to tell them that Jehovah's kingdom is at hand. I had a person knock on my door. Hi, I'm a Jehovah's witness. Of course you are. You're a Russellite. Charles Taze Russell invented your religion in the 1880s. He was a failed Seventh-day Adventist who was disappointed in the tragic false prophecies that were given. And so what he did is he abandoned a biblical view and then he began to make his own predictions and he predicted that Jesus would come back in 1918. I go, so you're, you're not Jehovah's Witness, you're, you're a Russellite, right? 
You follow Charles Taze Russell. Well, not everything he said was true. Oh, really? What part did he say that wasn't true? I guess I shouldn't have said that. Because when the false prophet admits their false prophecy, they have to own up. The false teachers seem to ignore the fact that marriage was a gift from God, established by God. And so remember, the false teacher will ignore those portions of the Bible that suit them. They ignore the fact that marriage is a gift from God, established by God, defined by God as a covenant between one man and one woman for life in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Hebrews 13, 4 says marriage is honorable. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, specifically in verse 6, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Joseph of Smith says, God's given me a new revelation. Not only can I have a wife, I can have two wives, three wives. Hey, wait a minute. It's even going to go further. Not only can I have three wives, I can have your wife. What are you saying? Yeah, God has given me permission to have your wife. What are you saying? That I have to leave my husband and be joined to you? At what point will the wickedness and the, the disgusting filthiness of the extra biblical revelations that cause people to turn from what the Bible clearly asks us to do so we can add to the list of what false teachers delight in doing, forbidding what the Bible allows and then allowing what the Bible forbids. You might as well say it. I probably belong to a cult if I allow what the Bible forbids and I forbid what the Bible allows. One Bible teacher says, quote, false teachers will abound. Loving money, attention, distorting the truth, dividing believers, causing many to go astray as they follow deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. These participants in the church will renounce their faith, even though they may appear to still be faithful believers, unquote. So why do Jesus and Paul and Peter and Jude give a detailed listing of warnings of false teachers and their false teaching in part so that we would be able to recognize them, confront them, and refuse to allow them to poison our fellowship. So why are they wrong? Why are they wrong? That's the meaning in verses 4 and 5. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and, and prayer. Why are they wrong? We have to allow what the Bible allows. We have to forbid what the Bible forbids. And so how do we do that? How do we determine what is allowed? And how do we determine what is forbidden? And Paul is arguing that everything that God has created is good and doesn't necessarily have to be rejected in verse 4. And we talked about this for those of you who were here on Sunday where Jesus and Matthew basically confronts the religious leaders who are absolutely convinced that the externals are what matter and that somehow foods that go in your mouth and down your esophagus and into your stomach can defile you spiritually. And Jesus makes the pronouncement once and for all that, that food is not unclean, but clean. In the book of Acts, when Peter receives the vision of a satanic sushi sheet that comes down from heaven with every kind of thing forbidden to every observant Jew. And the voice said, rise up and eat. And Peter says, I'm a Jew. I'm a good Jew. I'm an observant Jew. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice said, why would you call 
unclean what I've called clean. He isn't just simply talking about the food. He's talking about the food and more. He's talking about the, the idea that all of humanity could be basically put into two categories. Not Italian people and people who wish they were. Two other categories. People who are clean and people who are unclean. To the Jewish person, at least they had the opportunity to be clean, but the Gentiles couldn't be clean under any circumstance. So Paul is going to argue that God cre- what God created is good and doesn't necessarily have to be rejected. And everything God created is holy. It's been made holy or separated by God's word and by, God's pr- by prayer. For every creature of God is good, it says, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified or set apart by the word of God in prayer. And so he's giving, he's giving the example of food or diet. He's going to speak to this in other areas, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians. He's living in a world in the marketplaces of Ephesus, in the marketplaces of Corinth, in the marketplaces of Rome, they don't have Albertsons. They don't have Safeway. They, they have open squares where people are butchering meat. And you would go out and as an observant Jew, imagine you, you come to this meat market and you say, this cow was sacrificed to Zeus. Here's what we did. We prayed that Zeus would inhabit this cow and then we cut its throat. We're hoping that demonic spirits live in this meat. I, I mean, if you went to Safeway and it said, sacrificed to Satan, would you say to your wife or your husband, you know, let's not get this one. Because in that culture and society, they believed that if you went through the ritual of inviting demons to to inhabit the beast and then you cut its throat that you were in fact ingesting the demons. And so there were certain things that people would never eat under any circumstance. It would appear that the dominant false teaching that had invaded Ephesus was this thing called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is the belief that the material world is largely corrupt, perverted, evil. And there's a sense in which that's true. The Bible certainly teaches that we live in a fallen world. That the world is fallen, it's polluted, it's been corrupted. But the Gnostics take it to an illogical and extreme, saying that all things material were corrupt and polluted. And that all things spiritual were in and of themselves okay. And so they would go to two gross, equal, and opposite wrong way of thinking. They, in their mind, imagined a God who was made happy when you denied your flesh and you fed your spirit. And by the way, is there a sense in which part of that is true, where you deny the flesh in order to feed the spirit, but what they did is they began to participate in a radical form of mysticism or a radical form of asceticism where they would afflict their bodies and, and where they would refrain from certain foods. And then they, they, they took Paul's good advice that for some people marriage is probably not a good idea because if you're single and you're free to devote your whole life to God, they, they would begin to think, well, if Paul says it's a good idea not to be married so that you can devote your whole life to God, let's go ahead and forbid people to get married. Let's make them devote their life to God. And Paul is arguing, you're misunderstanding the Bible. You're misunderstanding the gospel. You're misunderstanding freedom. What were the Christians in Ephesus being asked to believe? Were they being asked to wage war against aging or health or diet? Were they they being asked to be vegans and celibate in order to pursue spiritual disciplines and duty without the necessary encumbrances of marriage? Whatever is happening here, it is happening in such a way that they are being misled that somehow denying yourself 
is the way to experience a right relationship with God. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the way that you can have a right relationship with God is by loving and believing and trusting Jesus. Paul clearly spells out the normal characteristics of Christian leadership and service. It already included marriage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. So when he's describing the role of a deacon and he's describing the role of a leader, he's already told us that they should be the husband of one wife. And the people in Ephesus are going, hey, wait, our teachers are telling us that we shouldn't even get married. True Christian belief and true Christian living undermines the false teachers and their false teaching. The moment that you actually live an authentic lifestyle in Christ, one of joy and peace and freedom. You mean I can go to Red Lobster and eat shrimp and lobster? Yeah. You mean I can refrain from eating shrimp and lobster? Yeah. Do I have to be a vegetarian? No. Can I be a vegetarian if I want to? Yeah. Can you get married? Of course. Marriage is honorable. Can I refrain from getting married? Sure. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary is most helpful. It says, quote, The principles governing the right use of this life are, quote, A, God is the creator and his creation is good. B, he created food for men. And those who believe and know the truth about eternal salvation will have the right attitude towards the necessities of of this life and will neither deify the created thing or degrade or despise it, but will accept it thankfully as the Father's wise provision, unquote. Between the two evils, T. Edwards wrote, choose neither. Between two goods, choose both. I like that. In what sense? You aren't asked to choose simply between right and wrong and good and evil. What you're asked to choose is between life and more life and abundant life and super abundant life and exceedingly abundant above all that you can ask or think life. So how do you know if you're in danger? How do you, how do you even know if you might be involved in a cult? I've made a little laundry list. You might be in a cult if you've abandoned biblical teaching. You might be in a cult if you worship a different God other than the God of the Bible. You might be in a cult if you believe a different Jesus other than the one that's listed in the Bible. And so you've heard me say this over and over again. If you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. You need to be able to ask and answer and tell your friends, tell me what you believe about God. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. Tell me what you believe about salvation. If you have a different God and a different Jesus and a different salvation other than the salvation that's talked about in the Bible, you might be involved in a cult. You might be involved in a cult if you have to abstain from the things that the Bible allows and you have to do the things that are forbidden in the Bible. So what do we do? No, we hold fast to what the Bible teaches about God, about Jesus, about salvation. We hold fast to our freedom in Christ. J. Wilbur Chapman used to say, anything that dims my vision for Christ Anything that takes away my taste for the Bible, anything that cramps my prayer life, 
Anything that makes Christian work difficult, that's wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. Anything that would cause you to believe differently about what the Bible says about Jesus, about what the Bible says about his love, what the Bible says about his grace, what the Bible says about his mercy, what the Bible says about his salvation, with, the, with, with what the Bible says about his promises, with what the Bible says about your future. You can say, I don't have to believe that. Anyone who says that you have to do what the Bible says you must not do and who says you must not do what the Bible says for you to do, then that person's not your friend. That person's misleading you. That person's asking you to believe something that's not true. And so, we've been warned, but we're going to give practical instructions at the end of the chapter when we come back next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know we have friends, we have family, we, we know people who have abandoned biblical teaching. Lord, we know people who worship a different God other than the God of the Bible. Lord, we know that there are people who believe strange things about Jesus and they embrace some other kind of salvation than the one that's given to us in the Bible. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace and mercy and patience as we lovingly, gently, firmly reject false teaching and false teachers and remain faithful to what you've given to us in your, in your word. Lord, we pray for every single person in our life who's involved in a cult, for every single person who's trapped in darkness, who are bound in misery, who have given themselves permission to do whatever they want to themselves, or who have given them restrictions that the Bible never, ever placed on them. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would allow freedom to become a part of their life. And Lord, we pray that freedom would be a part of our life as well. In Jesus' name. And the saints said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.